Welcome to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. My name is Jenna, and in this series, I'll be speaking to plastic surgery residents and giving you an inside look at what it's like to train at their institution. We'll discuss the logistics, the leadership, and the lifestyle of a plastics resident at their program. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. John Smetona, who's a chief resident at Yale University in New Haven, Connecticut. John is originally from Cleveland, Ohio. He completed college at Case Western Reserve University and medical school at Northwestern University. He's interested in craniofacial surgery and will be starting his fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh this summer. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jenna. Thanks for making this happen. Awesome. So to get started, I'd love to hear kind of a big overview about the structure of your program at Yale. Sure. I'll kind of start without too much detail and we can settle in a little bit more detail on anything that you feel could benefit from that. We're an integrated six-year program. We have recently gone from two to three residents per year. So our PGY5 and six classes are two and the remainder of our classes are three and going forward will continue to be three for the foreseeable future. We spend a moderate amount of time on general surgery. That Specifics of that have been in flux. When I was an uh, intern, we were spending you know, most of the first three years on general surgery. Uh, in my case, I spent about half of my second and half of my third years on general surgery, and the current residents are spending even less than that, probably about uh, maybe six months their first and second year and two or three months in their third year. So that you know, continues to be fine-tuned to as, as we see the educational opportunity, but the big picture is a six-year integrated program with fair amount of plastic surgery time right from the get-go. And what's the experience like when you're on some of those non-plastic services in the early years? It's good. I think that's where we get our foundation in terms of medically treating for complex patients. I think we spend a pretty good amount of time on the trauma service and a good amount of time on the burn ICU. And we spend a month in the surgical ICU as well. So definitely biased towards intensive care type rotations with sick patients, which is definitely a good background to have for treating some of the complex wounds and very sick patients that tend to develop plastic surgical needs. And then we also spend some time on the more subspecialty side of things that are relevant to plastics. So we spend a month on ENT, a month on neurosurgery, a month on ortho. We get a little bit of anesthesia exposure, urology exposure, and you know the exact number of weeks that are allotted to those can fluctuate from year to year. Um, but roughly those are the numbers and plus or minus, you know, month on oral surgery as well. You'll get at least two weeks of that. And in general, on those rotations, you're a part of the call pool. You're so you're therefore treated as an equal, which is some really good experience as a PGY3 being the chief of the trauma surgery service at Bridgeport, which is a very busy and very high acuity service. Definitely a growing, growing moment, I think, for all of us when we get there. And also taking call for the pediatric surgery rotation is also quite challenging, you know, with seeing things like necrotizing enterocolitis in a first day of life baby, pretty far outside the comfort zone, I think, for a lot of us. But we do ultimately get called to assist with the abdominal wall reconstruction and wound management that comes later. So it's definitely a useful exposure for us. And you started talking about them a little bit, but can you go through some of the different sites that you rotate through? The majority of our time is spent at Yale New Haven Hospital. We do also rotate out to St. Raphael campus of Yale New Haven Hospital, which is about three quarters of a mile down the road. Uh, there's also a shuttle that goes back and forth between them 24-7. It takes about three minutes. Or if you're feeling 
like you could use a few steps, you can just walk. We also cover the VA, where you spend typically one month or our first year and one month or second year. And then those months are on general surgery and or urology, vascular anesthesia, depending on, again, the specifics of the year. And then we spend a more concentrated time there as a PGY-5, where we staff the plastic surgery service there in alternation with our co-seniors for the whole year. Are there any independent residents or fellows? There are no independent residents. There are three fellows. There's a craniofacial fellow. There's a microsurgery fellow. And there is a hand fellow. The craniofacial fellow is a newer fellowship that started five years ago. And that has been actually really great, I think, as a way of kind of bridging the gap between the residents and the attendings in some of these complex cases. I think often it's a little bit overwhelming as, as a resident in your first cranioplasty or your first orthognathic surgery to just jump in there. And the speed of the case may make it difficult for you to get involved. But I think having the fellow, you know, this year we have Joey Lopez, who's just been really great to work with in terms of gaining the trust of the attendings and then being able to slow it down for us a little bit and take us through things in a way that is a little more protected. So that's been a really good uh, asset for us. On the microsurgery side, we do have a microsurgery fellow, and I think the same thing can come to play there a little bit. We have a very high-volume microsurgery center here. In terms of our breast reconstruction practice, we're doing several free flap reconstructions a week, and it can just kind of help, again, lighten that load a little bit and also to allow residents sometimes to do more than they actually would do without the fellow just because of their willingness to be a little more patient or the expectation that they would invest more of their time to take a resident through a part that they may not be proficient at yet. And the hand fellow is also been a fixture of our program for uh, quite some time and they can just help to cover it. And sometimes we often have multiple hand rooms going the same day and we can't always get a resident to all of them. So it just helps to make sure that everything is addressed. You mentioned a little bit about the call when you're on more of those general surgery services, but can you talk a bit more about what plastic surgery call is like? So that's had an evolution in a very positive direction for us over the past few years. Uh, we instituted a night float system, uh, I believe two years ago now. That has really been nice because essentially nobody has to come to work after having been up all night uh, the night before or, you know, having been sleeping with the ringer all the way up in case that when things went off, you know, with a home call, et cetera. So that's been a really good protective mechanism for our residents. And on our non-panel nights, things aren't always that busy. And so that also gives the call resident an opportunity to jump in on some cases that otherwise might have gone uncovered or that they're particularly interested in, or to do things like make a dentist appointment and buy dog food or whatever else they might need to do that can be hard to do on a resident schedule. When do residents start entering into that night float rotation? The night float is composed actually a little bit of narrowly of only PGY3s and 4s, but again, with three residents per year, that's not too excessive of a burden on them. The thought being that we want to make sure they're really ready and feel confident in their evaluation and management skills, which we want to give them all the second year to develop. Second year typically is the you know intensive consult pager experience for residents, but we do it. We have them hold it during the day and run all the consults. You know they have they have a backup system of the senior residents in place, and overnight that would be more difficult to have. So we want to make sure they're ready to be independent. And then by our fifth year, we are hoping to 
you know, not, not be detracting from the ability to do the big cases, the high profile cases, and really be honing our fellowship applications, job applications, and looking towards the next step, which I think you know, Nightfoot would take away from your ability to do those kinds of cases. So that's why we keep it to the threes and fours. And then how are things like hand and face call split? Hand calls every other week with us in orthopedics. That being said, we do take micro call for a decent chunk of the days that we're not on for hand call as well. So you, you have the potential to be called into a replant, you know, on all the weeks that we are on hand call, plus some of the time when we're not, which I think we like getting a, you know, a little bit more exposure. We don't have a high volume of finger replants here. So having more days to potentially do one is, is nice. And then face call is one to three with us, ENT, and oral surgery. We get, nevertheless, quite a decent volume of operative facial fractures. We've actually had four pan facial fractures come our way this year, which is really a very high number for, a, for any center in a year, even if you're taking 100% of the call. So that's been good for us. And we've had, you know, a large number of mandible fractures, EMCs, nasal bone fractures, all the, all the rest of that you kind of would expect with a craniofacial trauma. And what's the mid-level support like? The mid-level support is excellent. We have typically three inpatient PAs and a couple of outpatient PAs. The outpatient PAs are extremely proficient at fast-tracking things in clinic. The inpatient PAs are also extremely proficient at running the service. You know, many of them have been here longer than any of the residents and know not only how to evaluate patients, but attending preferences on very specific things. And so they really make things smooth for the patients, for the attendings, and for the residents. And I can't say enough how lucky we are to, like, the, the machine just runs uh, so well with their help. Overnight, it's pretty much just the residents uh, in terms of handling call. And as well as with the consult pager, is typically a resident issue. There was a recent move to hire a wound PA. Uh, we had a wound PA. He just left. And so that, pending his replacement, we'll see how what the next role for that is. And there was some discussion as well of having the PAs help offload some of the consult burden. But as of right now, uh, new consults are a resident service. Is there any opportunity for electives in the later years and either ones you can take at your institution or ones you can go away for? I think our elective experience is as good as or better than any other program in the country. Uh, we have three months of elective in our fifth year, which are you are allowed to leave for. And actually, the, it's ACGME regulation that you're not allowed to leave your institution for more than three months of training, uh, which is why we cap it at three. So for any of those three months, you can go uh, wherever you want. I personally went internationally as well as uh, within the country to see places that I was interested in potentially thinking about for fellowship. Most of our residents have done that, and uh, many of them have done away rotations at places that they ended up going for fellowship. And I also was able to go to Brazil to see, you know, just a different system in practice and to kind of continue a connection that had been there with our program and that of Brazil. In our sixth year, we have an additional elective period, but again, because of ACGMA regulations, you can't leave the institution for those three months, but it is also a really nice time to typically use to see some of the community practice, get more exposure to bread and butter cosmetic practice. That might include things that are even non-surgical, like you know lasers, fillers, Botox, other aesthetic treatments that you probably don't see a lot of in the hospital can be used in other ways as well. I actually spent a month of my time on the ENT service because I was interested in craniofacial surgery. So 
I uh, was able to go on their head and neck microsurgical reconstructive team and do some fibula flaps, scapula flaps with them. And that was also a really a neck, bunch of neck dissections and parotidectomies. That was a really rich experience for me as well. But again, just having that flexibility is it's really unusual to have as much elective time as we do. It's very easy. You don't have to request it. It just is given to you. So I think that's a real asset of the program. And so it sounds like, you know, you were able to go abroad. Tell me a little bit more about, you know, what kind of international opportunities are available. I guess there are a couple different categories of international opportunities. One would be mission trips. So there's a annual hand trip that one of our attendings has hosted for 20 plus years. Last year was actually the first year in, in all that history that it didn't happen because of COVID. This upcoming year, it may also not be able to happen, unfortunately, but I, th- I think hopefully the following year it'll be back on its feet. That's Dr. Thompson. You know, he's he's uh, been weeding this for a very long time, and he's very good at making it run in a way that is sound, both for the community that we're seeing and uh, for the people who are learning along the way, and to make sure that you know we try to go back to the same place year after year and establish follow-up so that some of the concerns with you know mission-type work are not coming to bear. The other avenue of international experiences through our elective time. And, you know, I, I went to Brazil one of my, the year before someone went to uh, Paris. And that same year that I was, uh, that I went to Brazil, my co-resident actually set up a rotation in Spain with uh, Del Pignal, who all of Europe perhaps refers to him for complex digital reconstruction. He has a huge volume of toe to thumb transfers, etc. That actually got canceled by COVID as well. But it's quite readily available. And in general, actually, is surprisingly easy to set up. I think institutions are excited to have someone from Yale come visit them and to maintain a, you know, kind of a network of communication. And Dr. Persing, who's been here for so long, is, uh, recognizes the importance of that and really values it as well and has himself gone to great lengths to maintain those connections, which has made it really easy for our residents to land places with the hit the ground running without uh, having to just kind of cross too much red tape or have a difficult time getting into the operating room. You discussed a bit how you can have additional cosmetic experience in those elective months, but can you tell me more about where you get that cosmetic exposure like over the course of training and if you have anything like a resident cosmetic clinic? It comes in a few different avenues. This is another strength of our program that we start our resident cosmetic clinic actually in our fourth year. So you have a couple months of that time in your fourth year and then you come back to it in your sixth year. And I think fourth year is pretty early to be getting exposed to that sort of thing. And I I know for myself, it was almost overwhelming sometimes to have these patients come in and ask for something that I basically had never heard of. But, you know, Dr. Persing being there was was really helpful in terms of orienting me to the possibilities and then, you know, just being as instructive as he needed to be to help me feel confident. So we have quite a bit of resident cosmetic time and I've done a pretty decent number of cases through it that have been really helpful for me. The other way that you will get cosmetic experience is just by whatever comes through the operating room schedule, which you know typically is, is much lower volume than our reconstructive cases, but we do do actually a huge volume of rhinoplasty here. I don't have the numbers on this, but I would, I would bet that we do far more rhinoplasty than any other program that, that's like actually happening at our main campus and is by protocol always covered by residents. You know, Dr. Steinbacher here does probably and the area of 100 rhinoplasties a year at at the main hospital. And I think I did three months of plastic surgery sub-eyes and I scrubbed into maybe two rhinoplasties. He's doing several a week. So that's a really exceptional thing to have access to. 
And we also do a very high volume of orthognathic surgery, which is not uh, strictly cosmetic, but does have a cosmetic element, particularly with the genioplasties that are almost always a part of them. And we do probably, you know, one to two of those a week. Also a very unusual feature of the program. Otherwise, the remainder of our cosmetic experience is probably pretty typical of what other programs have. And uh, you'll get your occasional blepharoplasties, facelifts, but not a torrential volume like we have of the other things. And if you really want to feel comfortable with them, I think it does make sense to seek them out. And your opportunities for that would be one during the night float weeks that you have as a third and fourth year. If things are slow overnight, the day is yours to do what you want with. And so that can be a good opportunity to go there, especially because they're usually not covered by residents. We don't have enough bodies that are often happening at surgeons' own surgery centers, whatnot. And so uh, we can't routinely cover that. And finally, with your potentially up to six months of elective time, you could be doing only cosmetic cases if that was your focal point of your interest. So there's plenty of opportunity to develop that experience if it's something that is important to the training. And what's your experience like with gender affirmation surgery? We have a very robust top surgery program here. We had a bottom surgery program, which is on hold because the urologist that we were working with has stopped treating that population. So we are in need of a reboot there. And that is something that is a key point of interest. Hopefully, as the COVID restrictions on hiring loosen, I will be able to build that up again. And our facial feminization program is picking up pretty nicely, actually. We've started to have a pretty decent volume of cases there, certainly more than one a month at this point, uh, which is pretty good. Um, But our our top surgery is, is definitely the highest volume. I think we're probably doing several per week. How would you say that your program manages resident autonomy through the years? I think it's done very well. I think the first thing that I noticed about the program here is that the culture is the selling point. I think it's a very warm and respectful and supportive culture. And I think autonomy kind of grows from within that in a natural way as you progress. You know, typically your second year, you're a lot of times pretty distracted by the consult pager, so you may not be getting to take a lead role in big cases, but I think by third and fourth years, that that's happening a lot more. In your fifth year at the VA, you're pretty much the attending. The attendings there make a point as much as possible to essentially just retract for you. A lot of the cases are a little bit simpler, and they do lend themselves well to that. It's a place where you don't, you don't get there until you're pretty senior, pretty experienced, and so it's been really good for that. And then you come back to the main campus as a chief, BDY6, and at that point, attendings by and large expect to be able to hand you the instruments and just be there as needed for most things. There's some things that's not as quite fully the case, you know, in, in some of the, the deeps, there's attendings still going to be there to kind of guide and keep things moving on, you know, just so the patient's not on the table for 20 hours. But by and large, I think the autonomy is kind of comes pretty seamlessly from the operative experience that we have, and I think people are, are pretty happy. And what's the research experience like? So starting in your PGY2 year, you have a requirement to publish uh, one scholarly work per year. In the first year, that is not required. We have a research day once a year, and residents are all expected to present. Actually, one of the nice things is that that day is supported by a grant from a, from a donor who is a former graduate of the program, and the best resident research in the clinical and basic science arenas wins a financial prize, which is always a nice motivation. And if your time is constrained, so is that of everyone else. So it's a pretty level playing field. It feels possible to win. So that's a nice thing that we do. There's a quite a team of medical students here that 
you know, people people want to come to work with Dr. Persing and Dr. Steinbach or some of the attendings here who are very productive in terms of the their research laboratories. And so it's easy as a resident to collaborate with these medical students who are, who are very motivated and, and very capable uh, to get projects done. And once you're ready to present your research, what kind of support does the program provide? That has also been excellent. In my fourth year, I think I went to maybe six, five or six conferences, and they were all covered. There's a list of conferences that are automatically covered if you get anything accepted to present. And then additional ones will be covered on a as-decided basis by the chief. But the answer has always been yes. When I've gotten anything accepted anywhere, I've, I've always been covered. With COVID, everything has gone virtual, so there hasn't been any need for financial support for that. But I do assume that once that is lifted, that will remain in place as it has been. The other thing worth mentioning is that we do have you know, a Department of Surgery Educational Fund, but we also have a separate Plastic Surgery Educational Fund, which is not necessarily standard. And that also, you know, if you haven't consumed that fund for traveling like I had in previous years, you can use it forever you want. So I'm going to get like a, a second pair of loops this year. You know, they, that should be something that they'll cover. So that's a perk of the program. That's it's, you're quite well supported. Are there any other particularly awesome perks? I mean, I think the big ones that come to mind are the elective, the double educational stipend. And along the same lines, I think our ratio of salary to cost of living is must be one of the highest in the country um, because we're basically lumped in like with the New York Boston pay scale. But you know, you know, a one bedroom in New Haven costs like twelve hundred instead of three thousand. So it's very easy to be comfortable as a as a resident. Yeah. What area of plastic and reconstructive surgery would you say residents come out with the strongest experience in? You probably have the highest volume of microsurgical breast reconstruction and craniofacial surgery. We have a really exceptional volume of orthognathic and rhinoplasty, as I was mentioning before. Dr. Persing is one of the fathers of really craniofacial surgery and the approach to cranioplasty and has really shaped that and built that program here. We do quite a few cranioplasties and uh, a moderate volume of cleft lip and palate as well. So I think you know, facial is, is really an asset here, and that's certainly played a big role in my own interest and ability to pursue that. Having that support from mentors within the within the field and that you know, body of research work to be able to participate in rather than having to try to build something from the ground up is really helpful in terms of honing my application. And then we have a very high volume of rest reconstruction, so I think anybody interested in micro should be have more than adequate opportunity to really do tons of microsurgery here. You know, you could, almost every day you could probably be doing a flap if you wanted to. Those are the most unique elements of our training, the most strong. What are some of the changes you've seen for the positive or for the negative over your course there? As all programs do, ours has evolved surprisingly rapidly, actually. Uh, in the course of my time here, it's gone from two residents to three residents a year. We've instituted a night float. Uh, the call structure has become much less demanding. Uh, we've decreased the amount of time we're spending on general surgery and have increased the presence of more senior residents on the main service because that's where most of the complex cases are. So actually the program looks quite different than it did even three, four years ago, but I think that's a good thing and it reflects the willingness of the program leadership to accept suggestions from the residents. All of these changes were made at the suggestion of the residents. I'm kind of seeing you know, between ourselves what was possible, what needed to happen, what needed to change. 
And I think they've all been really, really positive changes, even though, you know, maybe five, six years ago, they wouldn't have been. So I think that willingness of the program leadership to allow resident-driven change is a really big asset of our program as well. And how would you improve your program even further? Going forward, I think, you know, I'd like to see us get back into the gender-affirming realm for sure. Uh, One thing that's been floated for a while is having a joint uh, hand program with ortho, and I think that's something a lot of programs are interested in. I think, you know, one of the potential upsides of that is being taken out of your comfort zone a little bit or having to justify your thought process to an attending that doesn't necessarily share the same background or pattern of thinking that some of your own attendings do. So I think that could be an asset for us. I don't see a lot of weaknesses. I think the one thing we could maybe do more of would be also just complex free flaps for indications other than breast reconstruction. Uh, We do some of those, but I don't think we do a particularly high volume of them. We don't have a face transplant program, so we're not kind of, you know, harvesting that. And yeah, I think lower extremity or other, you know, fibula for mandibles, that sort of thing. We do, we do some, but not a, not a particularly high volume. Now to circle back to what you were talking about a moment ago, I'd love to hear more about your program leadership. So there is going to be some change coming. I think as people go around, they'll probably realize that whether or not it's advertised, that is the case at many places. If you look at the number of chair changes there have been over the last few years, and uh, there will be more for sure coming in the next few years. And one of the places where that's going to happen is here. Dr. Persing has announced that he's stepping down in June. He's actually planning to retire at the end of that month. We're going to have a new chair. There's been an active search. Uh, we don't know yet the result of that search, but uh, we're going to have a new chairperson. So that uh, is one thing that obviously will bring some degree of change with it. I do think the culture of the of the program and the you know, number of faculty that are busily and productively engaged is going to ensure some level of continuity, but there will be change there. On the program director level, uh, Dr. Shaw has been the program director for the past five years or so. He's very, very approachable and very dedicated to his job and very interested in protecting the residents. He's been a real asset to us in terms of also facilitating the programmatic changes we wanted to make. He was huge in, in rolling out a really nice curriculum quickly for us during COVID to make sure that time wasn't lost. He's been our program director for some time, and I don't see that changing anytime in the near future. And what kind of a role do residents play in department decision-making? So like picking new residents or involved with the chair search or faculty hiring? I think our involvement in all those things is is excellent. We actually... The PGY-5s actually get a vote that equals the faculty votes in terms of ranking applicants, which I think is a really unique thing to sit at the table and actually all the residents sit at the table at the at the ranking meeting and are privy to the way that attendings are thinking about evaluating these people. And that is, I think, really special about this place. Residents also interview the all of the fellowship applicants and also have an equal vote in terms of how they'll be ranked. And so that really gives you a sense of agency. And then the resident that does that is usually the resident who will be a chief when the fellow is going to be there. So you basically get to pick what fellow you're going to work with to some extent as a chief. So that's been nice. And in the chair selection process, we also had a role. We also interviewed all of the candidates and submitted rank lists for them. And I'm not sure what weight our votes were given as compared to the search committee, but uh, I thought it was cool that we were involved like that. 
Now, can you tell me a bit about the relationships amongst the residents? I think they're good. I think we right now have a really nice situation where many of us are friends aside from work too. And I think that really helps things kind of flow nicely at work in terms of people's willingness to help each other and share the load a little bit. You know, COVID has unfortunately put a damper on that a little bit where, you know, it's not necessarily appropriate for groups of residents to be hanging out all the time. And uh, so we really, that has scaled back quite a bit. But now that many of us are vaccinated and hopefully I think some changes in what's socially appropriate will be coming, that can get back to what it was a little bit. And uh, we're all looking forward to that. What are some qualities of a resident who would fit well in your program? We'd be looking for someone who, first of all, is is a good team player. That's probably something that every program would say. You know, we want to make sure that somebody is interested in in pulling their weight and hopefully helping their fellow as well. Obviously, they need to be capable intellectually, academically to keep up with the demands of work, which at times can be significant. And hopefully a friendly, enjoyable person to be around. And... The thing that really would make someone stand out the most if they have all those things is someone who is really, we think, is going to be a leader in the field, someone who demonstrates unusual ability to solve problems through research or to bring advocacy to the table for patients who need it the most. That would probably put someone over the top, but I think that kind of baseline of those other things is would make someone a good fit for us. Does your division or your department have any experience with IMGs or non-traditional residents? Department of Surgery at Yale is very supportive of IMGs. We have a significant number of them in the general surgery department. I'm not specifically aware whether any of the current plastic surgery residents are IMGs, but I know that since we are part of the department, that certainly is something that would be supported We actually have had experience with even undocumented individuals becoming residents here. And Yale is one of the few institutions that, you know, has the legal backing and support to handle that. And I think that's a pretty special thing that they do. New Haven, as you may or may not be aware, is a sanctuary city, actually. And I think that environment very much extends to the hospital in terms of the way it protects its workers and welcomes everybody. And now a little bit about how residents live in New Haven. So do most own or rent? That has fluctuated over the course of my time. I think right now almost everyone's renting. There happen to be a good number of single people who are living downtown and renting. When I was a more junior resident, a bunch of people were married with kids living, you know, 10, 20, 30 minutes outside of town with a house that they owned. And those options are both readily available and uh, I think it really just depends on people's preferences and their, you know, living arrangements that fit their lifestyle given, you know, partnership and children. What are the maternity and paternity benefits like? So I haven't looked into that myself because uh, it hasn't been particularly relevant for me personally, but I think maternity leave is a ACGME standardized thing that has recently been increased Sure. I guess more like the culture of support for residents who are interested in starting families. It's definitely pretty good. We have had a number of residents have children during their residency, actually, and everyone has been supported as much as need be uh, over the course of that time. And a lot of people are focusing on their career at that time and not necessarily planning for kids during that time, but it's certainly possible, I think, depending on the age that people come into residency and finish it. And it's been done recently and it didn't, and there were no issues with that. So I think it could be done again. 
And is it necessary to have a car? I am living proof that it's not. <laughs> I'm like five months from finishing and I don't own a car and I never did over the course of my residency here. However, most people do. But really, I think it's more just for your personal quality of life to be able to go places easily on the weekends than it is for work. Downtown is a short walk to work and I live between the St. Ray Fields and Yelmahaven campuses. I'm about a six minute walk from one and a 10 minute walk from the other. It's hard to imagine I could save much time by driving. And you know, you already mentioned a little earlier, great cost of living, but what else do you like about living in New Haven? One of the things that is probably the strongest asset is that it's a, it has Yale right there. I mean, it's a university town. It's not just any university, and so obviously they have a great intellectual life around that. There's a lot of theater. There's some off-Broadway stuff that comes up the shore. is accessible for probably less than it would be in New York, certainly. There's several live music venues, which, again, before COVID, were regularly full. And the campus itself is very pretty. There's a drama school that puts on a lot of performances as well. The food scene is actually surprisingly good as well. There are a number of, or a bunch of restaurants that I really enjoy going to and that are pretty reasonably priced. And the final thing that is a perk of the area more than the city is that it's very easy to get, first of all, to New York or Boston. You know, without a car, I've had no problem getting to New York. Metro North stops a mile from my door on one end, and the other last stop is Grand Central Terminal in the heart of midtown Manhattan. There's also public transport to Boston. I think many people may be aware of that, but what they may not be aware of is that there are all these old towns and cities up and down the shoreline of Connecticut that can be, you know, fun day trips for weekends off that a lot of our residents have really enjoyed doing. So that's pretty much everything I wanted to talk about today. Any final thoughts either on your program or on the process of choosing a residency? I think the process is difficult, but people should trust their gut. I think you'll often get a kind of a feeling for what a program is like over the course of talking to people. And I, that is what I got from here was a really positive culture. And I came here and that's uh, completely lived out to be the case. And I think especially in, you know, this time of Zoom and it being more difficult to get boots on the ground, I think uh, people should be somewhat reassured that their instincts are still probably true. And I think the selling points of Yale are that it's a very, uh, you know, warm, supportive environment. And it's been flexible, adapting to the changes that have come and it's in a continuous way. And hopefully we'll see three more of us next year. In the meantime, how can interested students find out more? We do have an Instagram, Yale Plastic Surgery. It's kind of just taking off. We have a website. You can see you know, prior graduates as well as some basic information about the program. All of our emails are first.lastname at yale.edu. So I'm happy to respond to any email that uh, any prospective applicant may have. Uh, any questions about that? They can also find the program coordinator's email there as well as the faculty emails, and uh, people are quite responsive. So if there are questions, send them along. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. You're welcome. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening to the Doctority Plastic Surgery Podcast. Never miss an episode by subscribing to our show via your favorite podcast service and following us on Instagram and Twitter. For more podcast episodes and residency information, check out our website, doctority.co. That's doctority.co. 
We love feedback from listeners, so please contact us through the website or through social media with your questions or suggestions. See you next time.